What's up, guys? It's me, Heather, back with an, another episode of Strike Boat, my novel, which I am podcasting as a free audiobook on Strike Boat. So if you're new here and you haven't listened before, please go back to the Substack and subscribe and look for episode number one at start at the beginning. Um, if you're new to uh, my channel, I am a Canadian author. This is an indie publication, to say the least. I wrote this novel myself. I edited it myself. I published it on Amazon. And now I am producing this podcast myself, reading it out in my own words and uh, my own voice. And I just want to say this morning, as I am watching the footage of the Truckers for Freedom rally rolling across this country, that I am proud to be a Canadian this morning. So with that, Let's get down to reading some good old Canadian literature that is indie and new and fresh, and uh, hopefully you'll like it. Chapter 12, Cochrane. Cochrane was in his private suite, still in his recliner, waiting for his prostitutes. Where the fuck's my whores, he muttered. Like Jennings had, he was watching the footage of the damage to the Bruce spliced in with clips from Anderson's slideshow, and his mind was turning and turning with thoughts of Project Resolute. So far, nobody on TV had mentioned the nuclear plant, at least not that he had seen, and that was good. Why aren't they mentioning it, he wondered. Useless freaking wall was supposed to get that word out. Having Anderson include the slides about the nuclear plant and the potential for an explosion was just about the only goddamn bright spot about the video being played on national TV. He picked up his phone again and dialed Beatrice Fillmore, his cousin. She picked it up on the first ring. Hello? Yeah, listen, B, it's Eric here. I need you to do something. I need you to have your people generate some hype about the nuclear plant. Any thoughts on how we can amp up the fear value, spread the word around that there's going to be a meltdown? incite panic. Bea weighed her next words carefully because, after all, Cochrane's blood ran in her veins. Of course I can do that, she said. No problem. For a price. We can flood the social media feeds with bots, make it seem like workers from inside the plant are tweeting out worry and concern about a meltdown, take a couple of photos of red lights flashing, danger signals, that kind of thing, and have the bots dispatch those through the socials. Then as well, there's the Alexas. Good, I'm liking the sounds of this so far. Go on. We've got data showing that something like 90% of the homes in Canada have a digital assistant or Alexa in them. We can send them a signal, have them come to life all at once and start bleeding out a message. Something my team will engineer so that it sounds like an authentic glitch. Like the, authentic, like the Alexas are picking up a message that they're not supposed to be repeating. Mentioning the potential meltdown. That would be the easiest. A thing like that would spook the hell out of people. It's what those units were designed for. Cochran turned this idea over. He could see no downside of generating the kind of fear that Bia was talking about. It would serve the resolute narrative quite well, he thought. Indeed. That sounds great, Bia. Make it so. Not so fast, she said. 
I mentioned I could do it for a price. Cochran rolled his eyes, but this he understood. This was negotiation. This was business. And it was right and good and fair in his mind that there were costs to that. Go on. In the back of a limo, being driven safely out of the evac zone by her chauffeur, Bia was also watching the news on the small TV mounted into the seat ahead of her. I can put two and two together, Eric. I'm not dumb. I know you, and I know about your compound, remember? I get the sense that these requests of yours have something to do with that, and I want in. Cochran scowled. Resolute's my idea. Those potential profits belong to me. Relax, you can have your resolute. I have something else in mind. A little trade-off, you might say. The big tech boys and I, we've been dreaming up a little scheme as well. A digital surveillance app that's modeled after China's social credit system. I mentioned it earlier at the meeting. If I'm following the consequences of this loss of landmass properly, there's going to be debt unpaid that will become unpayable. People can't work if their jobs are underwater. And if they don't work, then they don't get paid. But they still have debt. Their debt is still going to exist, and so they still owe money on things like mortgages and car payments. None of that gets written off, at least not right away. We can use the opportunity of the disaster to make them sign their debt away, and once they do that, we can use the app to rank them, evaluate their trustworthiness, compliance, monitor their social media use, find out what they say and what they watch online. If they watch any content that varies from our narrative, we lower their score, restrict their movement. It's a brilliant way to use our algorithms to control all spending and consumption. Cochrane was intrigued. How do we make them do it? Bia smiled indulgently. The apps are available now. I give the word. They go online. Then it's just a matter of a QR code at the intake point. And once we have them signed up through that, We have them. Total control. We can use the scoring system that the app assigns to them to limit what they can purchase, force them to support our industries, and if anyone dissents or causes trouble, we can go in and override the app, lower their scores for ourselves, plant some pedophilia on their device, something like that. Cochran was nodding. Impressive. Okay, you got it, but I want in. Sign me up for 100,000 shares. I'll bake it into the plan. Good. I'll have my team send you the speaking points that you can send to Wall. Oh, and one more thing. She allowed a little sneer into her upper lip. It curled in an unlovely way. I can make the news stop running this shit, if you want. I can make the CBC erase this slideshow, make it so the story never happened. We bought them out a long time ago. You want me to do that, Eric? He thought about it. Not yet. Let's keep that card in our back pocket for now, okay? And Bia, you're the best. Always know I can count on you in a pinch. You got it, Eric. Take care. She hung up. Cochran inclined back in his chair and tented his fingers in front of his face. Things were coming together. He was just about to page Summers again when he heard a soft rapping at his door. Ah, he thought, a little fellatio would calm his mind, improve his focus, 
His cock twitched in anticipation. Come in, he grunted. The door opened, and for a moment, a slender female form was backlit in the fluorescent lights from the hallway. He took a moment to savor the exquisite physique depicted in silhouette, but it wasn't until the door snicked softly closed behind her that he realized that the woman standing in front of him was Cynthia Jennings. What do you want? He scowled. The bitch had balls showing her face in here after leaking that slideshow. He would give her that. Maybe she thinks I don't know, he thought. But Cochran knew. Cochran always knew. Sir, I have something to tell you. Some bad news. You see, my father, well, he gave me the wrong email address. It's not his fault. It was only off by one number a three when it should have been a six. But as you know, sometimes that's enough. And listen, how about we cut to the chase, okay? I don't have time for this. He was looking at her with the, oh my God, I can't believe you can be so stupid and still exist expression that he normally reserved for geniuses like Summers. I'll deal with her later, he promised himself, after I have my horse. Cynthia dropped the innocent act and cut to the chase. Anderson Arthur's slideshow went to the wrong email address. It was my father's fault. I sent Doucette to go and find the bitch it went to, so it should be taken care of. But I wanted you to know. Cochran looked at her appraisingly. So she's come to sell her father out, he mused, sliding his hand along the stubble of beard on his chin. Well, well, well. I already know about the email. Doucette ran into trouble in Mount Bridges. I had to get Fallon to rearm him. He waited to see how she was going to play this. It was amongst the most interesting things that had gone on all day, but he wasn't expecting what happened next. Cynthia gazed at him coolly. Then she arched an eyebrow and began to unbutton her blouse. She did it slowly, eyes locked onto his, not speaking. He watched, mesmerized, as her nimble fingers deftly slipped the buttons from the fabric, opening it down to her small, flat navel so that he could see the lacy clamshells of her bra. She threw a swivel into her hips and came to stand before his chair, close enough that her knees were interspacing his. I want you, Mr. Cochran, and I came to see if you want me. She shrugged out of her fashionable blazer and tossed it aside, then slipped the silk blouse off as well. She stood before him in her bra and skirt, then reached behind her back and unclasped the bra. Slowly, she drew the straps down her shoulders and slid it from her. Her breasts tumbled free, smooth and full, and tipped with palest ivory. She bent from the waist and leaned towards him, her hands on the arms of his chair. Her breasts were inches from his face. He stared at them, transfixed. She gave a little shimmy and tossed her long blonde hair over her shoulder. Arching her back, she swung her hips so that his, his view of her body turned side on. She smiled that feline smile again and watched his eyes rope over her, lingering on her breasts. She placed both hands on the right arm of the chair and glanced back over her shoulder at her skirt. Why don't you help me with my zipper and then we can get down to business? Cochran grunted. He wondered what she was playing at. He wasn't an attractive man. 
He was ugly, and he'd known that all his life. He had a pork-eyed face, bad skin, acne scars, and a spare tire around his middle that no woman would find attractive. These things he knew about himself, and so although he was entranced with Cynthia Jennings' performance, he kept a wary distance in his mind. What the fuck is this, he wondered. But he did as she suggested and pulled down the zipper on her skirt. She gave her hips a shake and down it fell, and he forgot to think. She was exquisite, with her body poised above him in this darkened room, the long, pale curve of her hip shining silver in the light from the TV. He swallowed. This was not some two-bit whore, with her body arched invitingly over his. This was a thoroughbred. This was A-list. This was Cynthia fucking Jennings, whose old man would bust a gut when he found out what she was up to. He reached up and began to touch her, sliding his hands over her breasts. He ran his fingers lightly down her back and cupped her buttocks, then returned to her breast to give her nipples a squeeze. Leaning into his touch, she moaned and writhed her hips, probably just trying to save her own ass. The thought occurred to him. He nodded shrewdly. He'd had women throw themselves at him before, and even though they put on a good show, although rarely had he had one put on quite as good a show as Cynthia Jennings was right then. It never failed that they were dry as a bone when he fucked them. That gave him an idea. Without warning, he left off, touching her breasts, and jammed his hand between her thighs. He parted them roughly, and without preamble, drove his fingers into her. She gasped and arched against him. She was warm and wet, he found, as she rocked her pelvis, grinding against his hand. His jaw went slack. He gazed at her with a flare of something hungry in his eyes. Cynthia brushed her breast against his face. He caught one nipple with his teeth and bit it. She climbed up onto his lap to give him greater access to her body. She brushed her lips against his ear, darting out her small pink tongue to pull his lobe into her mouth where she began to suck. He wasn't good looking and she wasn't attracted to him physically, but power excited her. Money excited her, and after the way her father had treated her, fucking his friend, who just happened to be the most powerful and influential man on the planet, had a certain appeal. It was one she intended to follow through on. You want me, don't you, Mr. Cochran? Her voice was silky in his ear, his fingers still inside her. She rocked against his hand. His cock was hard as iron. He wanted her all right. It had been years since he'd felt that delicious feeling inside of sliding inside a slippery woman that genuinely wanted him and hadn't been paid to be there. She slid her hands down his shirt front and felt the hardness below his belt. She moaned against his neck. She began to stroke him, and he suddenly stood, scooped her into his arms, and carried her to his bed. In his office, just down the corridor from where they were, Anderson was also watching the news. The CBC webpage had put up a live link to his slideshow, which was very a very disconcerting feeling. If I'd put my name on there, under the title, Anderson thought, they'd be saying that on national television too. The slideshow was playing a sidebar, the worsening rockfall at Wyerton on the main screen. The camera panned down into the divide. The expanse of water between the two sides of the landmass had widened dramatically, said the news reporter. 
in the background, a line of cars backed up as far as the camera could see, stretching off to the north end of the roofs beyond the chasm. People on the roofs are starting to view this video. They want off and they want answers, but so far there's been no word from the authorities as to what's actually happening here. The reporter was giving her voiceover, but Anderson's eyes were drawn to the people standing with stricken faces staring at the ruined road service that dead-ended so cataclysmically in front of them. The news switched to another topic. A fashionably dressed blonde acre woman named Heather appeared on screen. Firefighters in Stratford, Ontario are battling a massive blaze that's broken out at the site of a large sinkhole. Let's go now to our correspondent on the ground. A young reporter stood in front of the scene of the wreckage. Behind him, a five-story apartment building had collapsed into a sinkhole. What was left of the building that still stood above ground was on fire. As Anderson watched, fire crews um, aiming water cannons attempted to combat the blaze, but could only get so close. The reporter coughed. We're here in Stratford where eyewitnesses say the ground just opened up and swallowed the base of a residential building whole. The five-story structure has collapsed. Some residents have been able to flee the building, but officials have no way of knowing how many are still inside. The fire you see behind me is being blamed on broken gas lines. The situation is severely unstable. The sinkhole is growing. Moments ago, we captured this footage of another chunk of pavement shearing off and falling down into the hole. This fire engine has had to back up several times as the sinkhole widens. Worse, there seems to be some kind of water shortage in the area. A statement from the fire chief indicates that the water levels in the area's quarries are running dry. Peering closer, Anderson watched what he thought was an air conditioning unit slowly sink beneath the muddy surface and disappear into the slurry. A boy of about 12 or 13 sat on a stretcher while EMT workers bandaged his arm. The reporter held the microphone towards him. I was making some KD, the boy said, his face white with shock. I had the water boiling when the floor collapsed. Next thing I knew, I was looking upwards at the ground outside the building. The KD pot fell on my arm. I crawled the other way towards daylight. I barely made it out. The boy's, welled over, the boy's eyes welled over, and a female EMT worker waved the camera away. Anderson put his head in his hands. It was happening so fast. The sinkholes had started, which meant the shale was running down to fill the empty air pockets. People were getting hurt and killed, and for every soul that perished, Anderson would hold himself responsible. He could have gone to the authorities with what he'd found. Instead of telling Cochrane, he should have gone directly to the police. They'd have had no choice but to evacuate the area, and nobody would have had to die. Wouldn't have done any good. They own the cops, he thought. He shook his head. That didn't matter. He felt the guilt weigh on him. He wanted to put his head on his arms and go to sleep, but then the newsfeed switched to another topic that made him raise it up again. We're going live now to our correspondent at the Fallon Thrust Plant in Mount Bridges, where it seems that workers are staging a wildcat strike. Jim, do we have any information? This footage is coming to us live from inside the factory, Heather. The figure walking in front is Jamie Sinclair, our correspondent. 
Jamie and her team were at the plant today because Fallon was supposed to be receiving the Green Initiative Award for his environmentally conscious line of vehicles, but it looks like the real story here today is the wildcat. The camera panned along a line of Fallon thrusts, finally stopping to focus on the one that was at the tire install station with its missing wheel. Jamie appeared on screen, her back to the chanting crowd of workers that had gathered there. We're live in Mount Bridges, Ontario, where a wildcat strike is unfolding at the Fallon Thrust plant. These workers have seen the slideshow that's trending on social media, and they demand to speak to Lawrence Fallon. Our viewers have seen the slideshow as well. There's some pretty damning allegations being made against Fallon himself, as well as a group called FLAG, which records show is incorporated as a humanitarian charity. The slideshow alleges that Fallon Motors and its parent company, Manico Fuels, have been involved in some unauthorized hydraulic fracturing in this area under the flag umbrella. Let's listen in. Anderson felt his heart trip hammer. This thing had taken on a life of its own. I wonder what would happen if they knew about Lloyd Preston, he thought. If only he could get a message to those workers at the plant, the ones that seemed to be the ringleaders. The camera panned in on Vic's face. Jamie held the mic to him. I was at Mayor Walters' office this morning with my friend Deb here, and that was when the quakes began. That's when Jenna, Mayor Walters, got the email that contained the slideshow. Next thing we knew, someone from Flag called to threaten her. They said to delete the email or they'd send a man to hurt our mayor. Jenna put it on the internet and sure enough, a man showed up and tried to get to her. Then Lawrence Fallon came to give the man a gun. Vic paused, looking around the aisleways, looking for Fallon, then turned back to the camera. Fallon knows what's going on. These workers here deserve to know the truth. The slideshow says this land is going to sink under the waterline. If that's the case, then people need to know. So we came down and stopped the line. Not one more thrust rolls off this line until Fallon tells it to us straight. A roar went up from the assembled workers. Anderson swallowed. If he could get a message to this Vic guy, tell him that they'd killed Lloyd Preston. And if Vic could confront Fallon with that accusation, Fallon might be rattled enough to admit to the whole thing. The only question was, how? Anderson considered. Vic had been with Mayor Walters. Maybe someone in her office knew his cell phone number and could get a message to him. All of a sudden, he remembered the IT guy whose number he had stored. He'd been acting on instinct then, but now that events were unfolding, he wondered if there was something more at play. Certainly, the urge to call was overwhelming more of a compulsion, almost to the point where he felt he was fulfilling his role in some greater purpose. A shiver went through him. He found Jay Marksman's number, took a breath, and dialed it. Jay was holding the still live-streaming webcam, panning it around the shattered window, trying to get a visual on what that crazy fuck that shot at them was doing down there in the service alley without putting himself in the line of fire when his cell phone buzzed in his pocket. He looked at the display, but didn't recognize the number. He put the laptop on the table, facing in the direction of the others, then walked a few steps away and hit talk. Marksman, my name is Anderson Arthur. You don't know me, 
but I'm the guy who made that slideshow. Anderson was speaking quickly. Flag HQ was not the kind of building that you wanted to be overheard saying the kind of things that he was about to say. He glanced around himself nervously. Jay bristled. Hey man, I'm not going to pull it down. You guys already tried that once, remember? I'm not trying to tell you to take it down. Anderson pinched the bridge of his nose and forced himself to stay calm. Look, they'll kill me if they hear me talking to you, okay? So just please listen. Jay dropped into a rolling desk chair and scrubbed a hand through his hair. Okay, you got my full attention. I'm listening. My instruments picked up the damage underground. I put the information into the slideshow, and there was a meeting this morning, not too far from you, in Milton, so that I could show them all about the damage they've done. I was trying to get them to stop fracking, call the cops, tell them to get everyone out of the evac zone, but they said no. They couldn't stop fracking. They called that ludicrous. They said there was too much money to be made. Cochran told everyone at the meeting to get outside the evac zone, regroup in a few days, and that's when they were going to do, except for Preston. He's with the UN, some kind of token representative that's supposed to be overseeing this farce of a charity and the crap that goes on here. Preston stood up to Cochran, said he was going to the authorities, and Cochran shot him. Fallon was there. The point is, Fallon's at the plant right now. They're running it on CBC. They got a wildcat going. Some guy named Vic? Jay broke in excitedly. Vic and Debbie? They really did it? They pulled off the wildcat? We have no power here except for what's left on our smartphones and laptop batteries. We didn't know. Yes, they're there right now. It's on the news. They want to speak to Fallon. If you could get a message to Vic and tell him that you know that they killed Preston to cover up the fracking damage, it might just rattle him enough to make him admit the whole thing. Anderson's face shone with sweat. His stomach hurt. He glanced at the closed door of his office and swallowed. If Cochran somehow hears what I've just done, he pushed that thought away. Hold on. Jay put the phone against his shirt. Hey, any of you guys got Victor's cell phone number? I have Deb's, said Mary. She's the municipality's contact for the union. Jay put the phone back to his ear. Look, we can't get Vic's number, but we have his friend Debs. She's with him. She was here this morning. They went together to the plant to start the wildcat. Anderson was nodding. Good. Get a message to her. The name is Preston, okay? Lloyd Preston. Cochran killed him this morning. I was there, and so was Fallon. He knows this fucking shit is filthy as sin. He's the one that thought up the microfracking system. Cochran only backed him. All of them, together, the flag board, they all knew that what they were doing had the potential to cause this damage, and they did it anyway, for money, because they don't care. It's how they live. Jay felt his flesh break out in goose pimples. Suddenly, he felt himself struggling to fight back tears. Hey, man, you really think it's real? You think this land is going to flood? You think there's any chance you could be wrong? Anderson heard the desperate hope in Marksman's voice. He sighed. Fighting back tears himself, he paused for a moment to pinch the bridge of his nose with his thumb and forefinger. I wish. But this is real, man. It's going to flood. 
The bedrock underneath our feet is brittle and cracked. The bruise is going down, and when it does, there will be a subsidence. It's happened before, not on this scale, not in human history, but it's a known phenomenon, and in this case, it's unavoidable. The area where you're standing is going underwater, and so is the nuclear plant, with whatever outcome that triggers. I wish it could be different, but it can't. Jay shut his eyes. A pair of tears leaked out. Look, man, if they're after you, come here. We may not be safe, but there's a few of us here, and we'll protect you if we can. Anderson nodded. I might just do that. Jay listened for a moment longer, but the phone had gone dead. He leapt out of his chair. Call Deb. Call her right now. Jenna had her cell phone out. Jay, what's going on? They killed a man this morning, Lloyd Preston. He wanted them to go to the authorities, and they shot him. Lloyd Preston is dead? I know of him. I recognize his name. He's from the United Nations. He's supposed to be the keynote speaker at a conference I'm going to next month, Jenna told him. Call Debbie, this Anderson guy. He wrote the slideshow, but he did it because he wanted them to go to the cops. They wouldn't, though. That's why he called me. He said to get the message about Preston to Vic and Deb. Jenna looked at Mary. What's the number? Mary read it off, and Jenna dialed it. Lawrence Fallon was inside the octagon, a glass-walled office in the center of the trim shop from which management could see out onto the factory floor in all directions. The room was built on the principle of the panopticon. The theory was that the knowledge that they were being observed at all times by management from within the octagon would yield the highest possible productivity from the workers. It had seemed like a good business strategy to Fallon when he'd approved the blueprints, but now that the tables were turned, the thing had backfired because window glass worked both ways, and now all of the workers were staring straight inside the octagon at him. There was nowhere for him to hide. He stood amongst a cluster of management personnel, watching the growing crowd of workers pump their fists and yell his name. They were calling him out, demanding to speak to him about the motherfucking slideshow, and the whole thing was being filmed on national television. Cochran is going to kill me if I don't handle this exactly right. That was what Fallon was thinking. He frowned at the supervisors clustered around him who glowered at their employees through the glass. Fallon singled out Wilson Smythe, the tall, balding drink of water that was Brentman's lackey. You, Fallon pointed at him, go over to that cameraman and tell him to shut that thing off. I don't want this fucking train wreck on the news. Sure thing, boss, Smythe replied, visibly puffing up his chest as he left the safety of the octagon. He took a deep breath and strode over to where Morty stood beside Jamie Sinclair. Okay, folks, show's over. Turn the camera off. You no longer have permission to film this plant today. Jamie arched an eyebrow, then reached over to tap her nail against the visitor's pass hanging on a clip card on her cameraman's shirt. I'm afraid I can't do that. This here visitor's pass says we've got permission. I have a contract in my briefcase authorizing me to film a live segment here and stream it to the newsroom between 2 and 3 p.m. today. 
I suggest you not interrupt that process unless you'd like to take this up with the network's lawyers. Jamie's smile was sweet, but her eyes were hard as iron. Smythe tried and failed to stare her down. Okay, you win, but after three it's going to be a different story. Fair warning, you don't turn your cameras off in 20 minutes, it's going to be you what needs a lawyer. Ricky Jarvis overheard this. He pulled out his smartphone, turned the camera on. Maybe she can't film, but I can, and so can all these people. He turned around and took some video footage of the crowd. A burst of scattered laughter and applause broke out. A few people held up their cell phones. Ricky turned back to Smythe. I think I'll put this on my Facebook. You might as well let this news crew do their job. He winked at Jamie. What's happening here is going to be all over social media anyway. Smythe bristled, glowering at Jarvis. The camera was rolling right behind him capturing all of this on film. Jarvis, why can't you stay out of this? You know you ain't got no protection in here. Shoot, you just a temp, boy. You think the fucking union's going to get your job back for you if I go and fire your stupid ass for insubordination? I may be just a temp, sir, but it's not the union's fault. Fallon brought us temps in, insisted in the last contract. Union tried to fight it, but you won. Funny thing, you know what happens when you make one group of people second-class citizens? Makes me feel like I got nothing to lose. No benefits, no sick pay, nothing. So go ahead and fire me. What do I care? You can always find another rat to fit my collar. Besides, he turned toward the octagon, met eyes for one brief moment with Lawrence Fallon. Boss man there's been lying, dude. Taking something that don't belong to him like the gas underneath all of these people's homes, and all they want is a chance to call him out on it. A blip sounded from Smythe's walkie-talkie. Get back in here, Smythe. Bruntman's voice came to them, crackling over the airwaves. Smythe took one more hard look at Rick Jarvis, then lobed back inside the octagon. Jamie stuck out her hand to Ricky Jarvis. That was great. I'm Jamie Sinclair from the CDC. Rick Jarvis, ma'am, at your service. Ricky took her hand and squeezed it, smiling. The Toyota Tercel slowed to a crawl in the eastbound lanes of the 402. Inside, four Fallon workers were en route for the afternoon shift. They were carpooling. The driver squinted ahead at a tangle of stopped vehicles and grunted. The road was completely blocked by transport trucks waiting to get onto the off-ramp leading up to Hickory Road, which was the same exit they had to take to get to work. The 402 was a divided highway, two lanes of blacktop in each direction, separated by a V-shaped grass trench median. In the eastbound lanes, the Tercel had come to a dead stop with the turn signal winking in futility. The driver could not exit the eastbound lanes because the parts trucks destined for the Fallon plant had backed up all the way back past the off-ramp and into the two lanes of traffic. This was causing a bottleneck behind the Tercel that was starting to back up as well, as the volume of traffic making its way from Chatham to London started to stack up behind them. It was 15 minutes to the 3 p.m. shift change, prime traffic time for a divided highway that serviced the busiest manufacturing corridor in Ontario. 
a vintage pickup truck had tried to go around the bottleneck by driving on the grass median down the center. It had gotten stuck in a slurry of wet muck, the driver on his cell phone, calling for a tow truck that would never come, a rooster tail of mud spewing up the back of the tailgate as the vehicle sat mired to the running boards. Must have been an accident, the driver of the Tercel said, a frown of worry rippling his brow. Shit, I hope they don't get mad we're late. I'm already in Hawk for last time. Brentman told me one more late this week and I'm out of a job. Beside him, in the passenger seat, a woman stared into her smartphone. I just got a text from Kimmy Pembleton. She says there's a wildcat going on. I guess they stopped the line at tire install. That explains the holdup. The driver peered ahead of them. There's parts trucks backed up across the overpass. Off-ramp looks deadlocked. Shift change happening too, a guy in the back seat said. There's Bill and Cindy up ahead and Peter Jeffries rolling up behind us. The woman beside him grunted her intention on her smartphone. Holy crap, she yelped. Kimmy just texted me a link to the CBC news feed. They're showing fucking tire install. Must be two or three hundred workers crowded around it. They're yelling something. Hey man, shut the radio off. Check this out. She turned the volume up on her phone to max and held it up so they could see. On screen, the crowd of workers chanted Fallon's name, the sound of it echoing throughout the plant. The four of them stared at each other comically for a moment, then burst out into nervous laughter. A red pickup eased its way up beside them in the traffic jam and parked. It was their co-worker, Peter Jeffries, driver of the Tercel rolled down the window. Hey, Pete, get a load of this. He held up his phone. I'll text you the link. They got a wildcat going on. It's on the CBC. Shifting the Tercel into park, the driver turned his baseball cap around and made himself comfy. Looks like we ain't going anywhere for a while. On the westbound side of Hickory Road, both lanes of the 402 were also bottlenecked, the backlog traffic stretching off in both directions. Down in the V of the grass median, under the overpass, the truck, the stuffed pickup sat, buried up to the running boards, the driver now sitting forlorn on the tailgate. The backup stretched for miles. On the other side of the overpass, a similar situation was unfolding in the eastbound lanes where the parts trucks coming from supply plants and a thousand fallen workers and passenger vehicles who were trying to get to the plant to start their afternoon shift were trying to turn off into the fallen plant. This was just in time transit, part of the global supply chain system that uses the nation's highways as a rolling warehouse. And this was what happened when that system broke down. The line at the Fallon plant had been down long enough at just the wrong moment. The traffic on the 402 had come to a standstill. Hickory itself was a mess. Burt Walker had left his stranded rig and waded through a tangle of vehicles with flashers on and grumpy drivers milling around outside their cars. Burt made his way over to join a knot of drivers on the shoulder of the overpass smoking cigarettes and talking shit. Bert stepped up onto a concrete barrier and scanned left and right, up and down the highway. He gave a low whistle and jumped down. Look any better down there? 
One of the other drivers asked this, punctuating the sentence with the hopped-up gob of phlegm which he deposited on the concrete. Bert stepped around it. Nope. Goddang 402 is backed up both directions. Some guy in a pickup tried to make it around the impasse by driving on the grass median, but it looks pretty swampy down in there and he got stuck. He chuckled. They don't get this figured out soon. There's going to be trouble. One of the other drivers cocked his head. Shouldn't not to be that muddy down there, should it? Ain't been any rain around here in better than a couple weeks. Bert took a long pull off his cigarette, considering. He realized it was true. In fact, he had been listening to a story about the dry spell just that morning. Wonder what the holdup is. Anyway, anybody heard? There were some mumbled comments about a breakdown, and then the cell phone in Bert's pocket lit up with a text message from Abdul. They got the plant shut down on Wildcat. Workers say they want to talk to Fallon. Bert showed the others. My friend Abdul is up yonder in Dock 88. Supposed to have been gone out of here an hour ago or more. Says there's a Wildcat going on. Another driver, who had gone back to his rig to grab a sandwich, stuck his head out of the window and yelled to them, Hey, come listen to this. They're broadcasting from inside the plant. Got it on the CBC. Bert and the others went to listen. They could hear the announcer loud and clear talking about the slideshow. Get off the bruise, hey? Bert opened up his Twitter feed, found it, and noticed it was trending. Hey guys, check it out. This is what they're talking about. Bert clicked on the link. The other drivers crowded in. They watched the opening slides, the Manico frac sites, the illustration of the Bruce falling into the water. Is that something to do with what's been going on at Wyerton? One of them asked, looking at the others. I got a call from a buddy of mine earlier, drives for the grocery stores, said he was stuck up the Bruce, said the road was cut off at Wyerton. He was looking for a detour but couldn't find one, said a bunch of roads are out. Bert hit pause. I heard about that on the radio. I feel bad for your buddy, man. I know that area. Ain't no other way down off the Bruce. Radio said it's a big mess up there. Gas lines snapped. Fires. I was... He broke off, looked around nervously. You fellows hear that rumble? A flock of blackbirds that had been perched along the concrete barrier took flight, cawing and flapping. The ground started shaking. The rumbling sound intensified, hurting Bert's sinuses as he fought for his balance. The quake went on and on. Distractedly, Bert put his phone back into his pocket, the slideshow unfinished, and reached out a hand to grip the fender of the truck they were standing by to hold himself steady. A tearing sound ripped through the rumble. Bert pressed his hands to his ears because the clamor was god-awful. Finally, the noise and the quaking came to a stop, and in its wake, they could hear the honking of multiple car alarms. You fellas all right? They looked shaken, he thought, but he didn't see anyone that looked hurt. There were mumbles of assent. Then Bert hopped up on the concrete median to peer down at the 402. Boys, you got to come see this. Look. They came over and joined him. A sinkhole had opened up in the grass median, swallowing the pickup truck that had been stuck there whole. Squinting, Bert could make out a sliver of roof line barely visible above the muck swirling at the bottom of the sinkhole. 
as he watched a parenthetical chunk of pavement calved off the inside lane, splashing up a brown wave as it crashed to the bottom. Bert scanned around frantically, looking for the driver of the pickup truck. With relief, he spotted the guy off to one side of the road, talking to somebody on his cell phone and gesticulating wildly down the sinkhole. Bert didn't blame him. Bert took a picture and texted it back to Abdul. Shit's going crazy out here, too. That last quake opened up a sinkhole in the median. You okay up there? Some of the other drivers were taking pictures, too. One of them turned to Bert. That slideshow say anything about a sinkhole? Bert stared at him. We didn't finish it. Hold on. Let's watch the rest. The two of them did. When they got to the end, Bert's face was white. He pointed down into the median. If that there ain't exactly what the slideshow said was going to happen, I don't know what is. The crowd of drivers had gotten a little bigger. Many of them stood in twos and threes watching the slideshow in groups. There was the sense of unreality hovering over them. Finally, one spoke. There can't be any truth to that video, can there? If it was true, the government would have had to clear the area, get all the people out, don't you think? Bert peered doubtfully up and down the deadlocked 402. I guess. Maybe. Hasn't been nothing on the radio about it. But there won't be anyone leaving this area by the 402. Not unless they got a helicopter. My buddy up front there says they got the line shut down, demanding to talk to Fallon. Could be this here's what they want to talk to him about. Another sliver of earth and pavement sheared off the side of the highway and fell into the sinkhole leaving the inside lane looking so, like some giant cookie monster had taken a great big bite out of it. He found himself wondering if he would be brave enough to drive his rig past it on what was left of the westbound lanes. No goddamn way. The sinkhole was creeping toward the concrete columns that held up the overpass. He swallowed uncomfortably, found himself wondering for the second time how much weight was currently being suspended on that bridge on supports that were anchored to ground that looked very much like it had gotten soft. He didn't like where things were going, but having a wife at home that could go into labor any moment, Bert knew it had to be even worse for Abdul. Mentally, he said a little prayer. God, please let things work out all right for them. Please let him get back home before she has the baby. Slipping his phone into his pocket, he cleared his throat and looked awkwardly around at the other drivers. Don't look like we're going anywhere anytime soon. Any of you fellas got a beer? In the council chambers, Jenna waited for Deb to pick up. It's ringing, she said. Finally, Deb came on the line. Jenna could hear banging and yelling in the background. Hello? There was a roar of intense noise behind Deb. Jenna stuck one finger in the opposite ear and yelled to make herself heard. Deb! Deb, it's Jenna Walters. Can you hear me? Jenna? Is that you? Inside the plant, Deb turned her back, then took a few steps away from the crowd. I can barely hear you. Is everything okay? Deb, I need to tell you something. Listen to me. They killed a man this morning. Preston. Lloyd Preston, at that flag meeting. Fallon was there. They shot a man, Deb, to keep him from breaking the story. Deb, can you hear me? 
Preston? Deb repeated it. Who's Preston? Jenna wanted to scream, but she tried again. Look, this guy called here, the one that wrote the slideshow. He was at the meeting this morning. He presented it. Preston wanted to warn people, tell the cops, but Cochran shot him. Fallon was there, Deb. If you get a chance to talk to him, ask him about how they shot Lloyd Preston at the plant. Deb was nodding. I think I got you. Fallon killed this Preston guy to shut him up. That right? A rhythmic banging had started up behind her. It's close enough. It wasn't Fallon, but he was there. It was Cochran. Look, tell Fallon that you know about the murder, okay? Got it. A rumble sounded over the phone. It got louder, and then the building started shaking. The effect was surreal for Jenna because she heard the earthquake coming over the phone line, and then it reached where she was, too. She felt the rumble in the floor as the municipal building started shaking right before the call dropped. She crouched on the floor, huddled with her arms around her knees, and waited for it to stop. All right, guys, well, I'm going to leave it there for now. That was a very long chapter, but I can't help noticing that uh, the theme of truckers and the 402 and the 401 on the highways here in Canada is definitely a theme of the day for me. I am, uh, just like I said earlier, so proud to be a Canadian this morning, and uh, I feel like history is being made Today is January 25th, 2022. Wherever you are, I hope you're keeping your spirits up and thinking positive and hoping for a better tomorrow, just like I am. Stay free.